0: Hello, and welcome back to Heights Library's podcast, Unpacking 1619, where you can explore the interviews we've collected with scholars from around the country, in which we unpack topics relating to race in America. I'm your host, John Pichet, and I'm thrilled to share these interviews with you here. Part four of our deep dive into slavery in North America's indigenous people, Kevin Wade, assistant professor of history at Durham University in England, discusses his book, West of Slavery, the Southern dream of a transcontinental empire. Professor Waite explains how railroads, camels, and the hope for a new international markets all played a part in the coming of the Civil War, and then drove Confederate ambitions. We spoke on June 24th, 2022.
1: I'm Kevin Waite. I'm an assistant professor of American history at Durham University in the UK. Um, and I wrote a book called West of Slavery.
0: Yes, thank you for joining us. And can you kind of give us an overview of what the book um, is about and why you uh, tackled this subject?
1: Sure. So the book is basically a history of slaveholding expansion into the American West. Um, And the argument is that slaveholding Southerners transformed a a huge swath of the American map in the 1840s and the 1850s. So we're talking about California and New Mexico and Arizona and to a certain extent Utah into basically a political client of the plantation states. Um, And so enslaved African-Americans were forcibly transported into all parts of the American Southwest, into California, into New Mexico, into Arizona, um, into Utah. Um, These places never developed what we could call sort of a plantation ecosystem system you know you couldn't find what looked like the, the cotton fields of Mississippi in 1850s California, but crucially, um, all of these states and territories um, to a great extent, owed their political fealty to the slave South and they voted with the slave South on the major political issues of the day. Um, and I argue that this has enormous consequences for not only the coming of the civil war, but how that war was fought and ultimately what emerged in the wake of the war, um, the political system and the labor war that emerged. And, and really the book is sort of pushing against two really important myths in American history. The first is that um, we can somehow quarantine the history of slavery and all the racial trauma that comes from it in the American South. Uh, And second and relatedly is this myth of the American West as a a terrain of freedom, uh, as a land made by these rugged white individualists that somehow remained isolated from, from all the ugliness of slavery and the political controversies that that threw up.
0: Yeah, that, that, um, I think challenging those two myths should do very well in the book. And um, one of the things, as I was reading it, I said to my coworkers, um, do you know the history of the transcontinental railroad? And they all said, oh, let me guess, it has to do with slavery because that's all I read about anymore. So could you maybe talk about how, you spend a lot of time in the book kind of unpacking what the railroad meant in America and especially to the South
1: sure yeah so the the book deals with what you could call the prehistory of the transcontinental railroad it's not the transcontinental railroad that we think of Um, it's not the completed railroad that gets linked up in 1869 Um, it really deals with the debates about where to run that road um, that just consumed congressional politics in the 1850s Uh, and americans could not agree on where this railroad should run Northerners, uh, Politicians from free states typically wanted the railroad to run across free soil and into the American West. Uh, Politicians from the slave South generally wanted it to run across slave country and into the American West. And they fought viciously over this issue because they knew whichever section of the country, North or South, got this railroad, would collect the the enormous profits that the railroad generated. um, And they would also probably, to a certain extent, control the political destiny of the American West. I mean, if this railroad was connected from the slave state to California, that would really bind together um, the, the southern half of the country, and it would pull California further into the political orbit of the slave south. Um, ultimately, this, this railroad is never constructed, and it's never constructed uh, because Congress just couldn't agree on it. They, they, this was the major political issue or one of the major political issues almost every single year in the 1850s. Again and again, it came up for Congress, and again and again, uh, it resulted in stalemate, largely because um, the... The conflict over slavery had become so intractable by the mid 1850s that neither side was willing to give any ground to the other on the issue of where this railroad should run. Um, So, you know, unbuilt railroads may not be the most sexy topics, um, but uh, I argue that they really tell us a lot about how the country um, fought politically and why the country went to war when it did.
0: So maybe you could speak a little bit more about that, too, because if... um... You know, one of the things I was interested to learn was that the, the South really saw uh, China as its next marketplace and, you know, having kind of saturated Europe. But yeah, so maybe you could talk a little bit more about how the railroad and this, this issue brought about the world.
1: Sure. And and this part of the book, the early chapter, is about the railroad and, and as John said, about the southern interest in China it was really my interest in the subject was really born out of a great book called *The Southern Dream of a Caribbean Empire* by Robert May, um, and, uh, and and his book that I think was published in 1970 really touched off um, a number of important studies about slaveholding expansion and slaveholding e- expansion into the Atlantic Basin. But I'm arguing in this book that Southerners thought almost as seriously about what their empire would look like across the Pacific world as well. Um, And they were particularly interested in China because Asia at this point in the early 1850s had about 600 million consumers. Slaveholding Southerners thought that it held 600 million consumers of Southern slave grown cotton. Um, And actually they did succeed in making cotton the number one American export into China during this pre-Civil War period. It never became a huge part of the American export economy, um, but they were making inroads in the China market. And they thought that with the construction of a railroad from say, Nashville into Southern California, that would funnel additional cotton across the Southern belt of the country and then eventually across the Pacific. Um, And so, they're, they're moderately successful in this aim. Um, one of the reasons that America opens formal trade relations with China in the mid-1840s is to facilitate this cotton trade. Um, and in the pursuit of this railroad, Southerners win some important political victories. So uh, a lot of you may have read about the Gadsden Purchase of 1853 and 1854 in your, say, high school history textbooks. Um, This is the sort of last major act of American territorial expansion prior to the Civil War. And the reason that the United States purchases this Strip of mostly dusty territory from Mexico in the early 1850s is to make way for a transcontinental railroad along a far southern route. It was thought that the United States needed this strip of land, which is now southern New Mexico and southern Arizona, um, that was the flattest, best route uh, for a a deep south railroad.
0: Yeah, and, and the people, and we forget too that prior to Civil War. Uh, the Southern uh, agenda was very represented in national, in the federal government, and I was interested to know uh, kind of Jefferson Davis's um, history before the Civil War. And when you mentioned this strip of dusty land, he had a very original idea to uh, bring camels over here. What was that? What was that about? That's a
1: yeah. Um, this is one of the sort of wild, uh, uh, you could almost say, quixotic episodes in the book. But I'm trying to argue that that uh, it it has more political importance than we once thought. Um, So Jefferson Davis will be a name familiar to a lot of you as the Confederate president, the one and only Confederate president, but really his primary preoccupation before the Civil War was the westward expansion of slavery. Um, And he, he backed a whole bunch of initiatives in order to facilitate you know, the growth of slavery into the American West. I mean, he was really good buddies with a lot of politicians in California, and he kept a really close tab on political developments in the Far West because he thought that this could become a really important ally for the slave South. Um, and so one of these initiatives was to import camels into the United States West and um, He he first brought up the issue in I think it was 1853. He he introduced the idea of an American camel Corps in the US Senate. And if you read the Senate transcription of of that speech, it's got Jefferson Davis's attempts to convince Congress uh, of this plan interspersed with in brackets, laughter, laughter, laughter. Um, I mean, he he almost literally got laughed out of the Senate, uh, Senate when he introduced this plan in 1853, but eventually he pushed hard enough for it that he, he was able to build this American Camel Corps. So over the course of the 1850s, the United States imported about a hundred camels for use uh, as military labor in the Southwest. And the the argument as, as Davis introduced it was, you equip American soldiers with camels uh, who are better, able to deal with the desert conditions of the American Southwest to subdue the powerful Native American nations in this region and extend American control across the continent. And if you extend American control, really consolidate American power in this region, you also make it a lot easier for slaveholders to move into places like New Mexico and Arizona and maybe eventually California with their enslaved laborers. I mean, the, the Camel Corps is, is really a footnote in most American histories because you know they did introduce hundred camels to, to the Southwest in the 1850s, but, uh, they weren't very popular with, uh, with us troops or, or travelers along the way. I mean, they were, they were smelly, they shed, they spit on passersby. Um, they were hard to deal with. It was much easier to use horses than camels, but there's an interesting afterlife to this camel experiment because, uh, Southern plantation owners in places like uh, Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama caught wind of these camels, and they thought that they would be useful as labor on their plantations. And so roughly another hundred camels were imported into the American South to be used basically as mules were used um, to carry to carry goods and to carry cotton across Southern plantations.
0: That yeah, was an uh, interesting... Uh... Little, ante- uh, little incident in the uh, history in it, but I mean it does make sense to a certain degree I suppose um, but I'd kind of like to now talk about the continental south and what what they hoped because you, as you said at the beginning there were no plantations that spread west as, as we think of them in the south so what actually happened and what was the south trying to accomplish in these uh, states basically California New Mexico, Utah
1: Yeah. So the continental South is a concept I introduced at the beginning of the book, and it's basically a response to the way that I was taught American history, and so many of us were taught American history um, through our school textbooks. I mean, if if you open virtually any American history textbook on the chapter on slavery and the coming of the Civil War, you'll see the American map divided into slave states and free states, and then Western territories. Slave states in one color, free states in another, and then usually the Western territories in some sort of neutral beige. Um, But the argument of the book is that the American map politically speaking actually looks a good deal more like the map that, appears on the cover of my book, that we should really think of the slave South as running across the length of the continent. Uh, It's basically the southern half of the United States, and we need to think seriously about the political orientation of New Mexico and Arizona and Utah and California and consider these relatively southern places, because when these places voted on the major issues, they typically voted with the South. and i think it's helpful to scramble our sense of american political geography during this period because it gives us a bigger broader understanding of the coming of the Civil War and who was involved. I mean, it's way too easy just to assume that the Civil War is this conflict between the free states of the Northeast and the slave states of the Southeast, but it was a continental political and ultimately military dilemma. And so by encouraging readers to think about the really continental dimensions of the slave South, um, I'm hoping to challenge them to see the, the entire Civil War in a new light.
0: And I think that's, uh, it kind of brings me to the next thing that I was interested to kind of find out about was that this breakaway from New Mexico and Arizona, and then just California as it kind of existed between the north and the south of the state, which is kind of a tension even today. But that it's helpful to think of it as if you cross the country, you know, in half. Just what was happening politically in those, in those territories at the time, right?
1: Sure. Um, and I'll start with California. Um, maybe I'm starting with California because I'm Californian myself and uh, that was in, in a lot of ways the origin of my interest in this project, um, but you know, as as a lot of you will know, California came into the union as a free state formally in 1850 as part of the Compromise of 1850, and Southern slaveholders thought this was a catastrophic moment for them. They thought this pretty much spelled the end of the westward expansion of slavery. But pretty soon they found out that even though it was difficult, difficult but not impossible to import enslaved black laborers into California it was certainly possible to um, peel off the votes of California and the rest of the West. So actually what you get across the 1850s is... uh, California voting with the slave South, like I said, on so many major political issues because um, the major power brokers within the state, and in particular, one man named William Gwynn, who was a Mississippi planter, come California Senator. Um, Gwynn continued to own and operate a massive plantation in Mississippi with about 200 enslaved uh, black laborers at the same time that he represented California in the Senate, and Gwynn used the patronage system really effectively to build this almost unbreakable political machine in California that owed its allegiance to him and owed its allegiance to slaveholders so that um, in the mid-1850s, advocates of free labor were wondering, well, how, what can we do, what's gone wrong in this state? We thought this state was a free state. And uh, there's, a, there's a letter from a, a Boston abolitionist who moves to San Francisco in the mid 1850s, writing home to his wife, trying to wrestle with this question. And he says, what's the deal with these slaveholders running the show? He said, well, maybe it's because all of us enterprising Yankees went into business and that left slaveholders with nothing else to do except go into politics and law. And to a certain extent, he's he's not wrong. Um, Southerners in California were disproportionately represented in law and in politics, even though they represented at most about a third of the voting population. They were able to maintain this sort of stranglehold on uh on politics in the state in that final decade until the Civil War. You have something similar going on in New Mexico. Um, New Mexico for most of this period, for most of the 1850s, um, was a massive territory that included what's now New Mexico and Arizona. And and um, uh, in the uh, during the secession crisis, the southern half of New Mexico actually broke off and formed a separate territory, the territory of Arizona, and Arizona declared its allegiance to the Confederacy. I mean, when we think about the Confederacy, we don't usually think of these Western territories, but in fact, the the residents of Arizona seceded from the Union for much the same reason that um, 11 slaveholding states seceded from the Union. They wanted to protect slavery, and they thought slavery would be better served. The interests of Southern slaveholders would be better served out of the Union.
0: Well, and that's, yeah, and I think one of the reasons, one of the explaining reasons, at least um, in your book, is this idea of uh, the Native American slavery system, which was kind of debt based. uh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce it right peonage?
1: Got it, yeah, peonage.
0: So maybe you could speak a little bit about that. And then also, We'll get into kind of what happened with the Native Americans, especially the Apache and Navajo during the Civil War.
1: Sure. Great. Yeah, I'm glad you asked, John, Um, because even if African-American chattel slavery didn't really take root in, in the American Southwest, One of the reasons it didn't is because people who wanted to own the labor of others had cheaper alternatives. Um, and, And American slaveholders recognized this at the time. It was far easier to buy the labor of, uh, of an indigenous person than it was to bring over an enslaved African-American into a territory like New Mexico. Um, so there were a number of ways to to coerce Native Americans and to force them into usually lifelong labor relations without pay. Um, you can argue about whether this this constitutes slavery as we understand it. Um, often these uh, these Native Americans uh, weren't heavily held in hereditary captivity in the same way that African-Americans were in the South. But the end result is really similar. The end result is a lifetime of servitude without pay. So there were a number of ways that uh, an aspiring Call them slaveholder or master in the Southwest could coerce the labor of Native Americans. One way to do it was to simply buy captive Americans, who captive Native Americans, who circulated across the um, the sort of borderlands market economy. Uh, often, you would purchase a, a Native American child and use that child uh, as a domestic labor. Um, there were also laws on the books in California and Utah that made it perfectly legal to adopt. Uh, a Native American child as your ward, um, and then force that child into domestic servitude in your household um, until they reached usually the age of 18, Um, often the the child would die before that. So effectively this is lifelong slavery for them as well. Um, And then as you said, there's the institution of debt peonage, um, which is a really important part of the New Mexican economy in the the pre-Civil War era. Um, And how that worked basically was you trap uh, peasants in cycles of lifelong debt. Um, And in a lot of cases, that debt could, in fact, pass to um, one's offspring, making uh, forced servitude hereditary, much like it was in the American South. Um, So all you needed to do is find an indebted peasant, bind that peasant to your land, um, and then that peasant would owe you labor to work off the debt, which they could never really work off because you never paid them enough um, for the rest of their lives. And so the numbers on this are, are difficult to track down because people weren't, for obvious reasons, keeping really close records of all the Native Americans that they were enslaving. But tens of thousands of Native, Native Americans were, um, were caught up in various forms of servitude before the Civil War.
0: Yeah, and then, and as you said, that's part of the reason why chattel slavery didn't quite make it. I mean, aside from the terrain being not conducive, but the uh, California definitely was. So was, why didn't slavery, well I guess it was a free state, right?
1: Yeah. And I mean, California for a while um, licenses slavery and a lot of people do make good money off of the backs of enslaved African-Americans, primarily in gold country. So at the outset of the gold rush, um, a number of Southerners brought African-American slaves into California to help them mine for gold, or I should say to force them to mine for gold. Um, estimates vary, but historians and Stacy Smith in particular is really excellent on this topic. Her book, Freedom's Frontier, she estimates that a about 500 to 1500 uh, enslaved African-Americans were smuggled into California, most of them uh, around 1849 to the early 1850s. That may not sound like a huge number, but when you consider just how expensive each and every one of those African-Americans were I mean, uh, the price of a field hand in the mid 1850s was about a thousand dollars, which in today's currency is about twenty five thousand dollars. So to run the risk of bringing that piece of property, and it was this person was legally owned as property, to bring that person across the country, that's a pretty big financial risk. So you actually have to be pretty sure that you're going to get a good return on that investment. And I know that's a really crude term to use when we're talking about real live people, but you know slaveholders bringing African Americans west certainly thought of it as an investment and a lot of them um, benefited from that investment that they made.
0: Let's talk about the, the Civil War now and these territories um, especially um, what happened to them and yeah you know, during the war and then we'll talk about it after
1: So the the continental South, exists during the Civil War as well. Um, And so it's to me, it's no coincidence that the very first Confederate invasion of the war wasn't into any of of the free states of the North. It was into the far Southwest. It was into New Mexico and Arizona. Uh, And the goal of this Confederate invasion, it started really, really small and it grew to an an invasion force of about 3,000. The primary objective of this invasion force was to sort of cut Uh, uh, a path towards California, and ultimately, hopefully, Confederate leaders thought secure the gold shipments of California. But this Confederate invasion also tried to shore up um, the defenses in Confederate Arizona. Remember, this territory had seceded from the Union in much the same way that, say, Texas or Louisiana seceded from the Union. Um, And Confederates, at least initially, were fairly successful with this invasion. Um, A Confederate army, the Confederate army of New Mexico, actually captured Santa Fe, which made it the only Confederate army to ever capture a capital in Union territory. Um, Ultimately, this Confederate invasion force was beat back by a far superior Union force, um, and they had to cut a really sort of hasty and madcap uh, retreat back to Texas. Um, And so historians look or some historians look at this in sort of the same way that they look at Jefferson Davis's Camel Corps um, as something of an errand into the wilderness. I mean, this Confederate invasion eventually came to naught. and I guess militarily, sure, it, it, it was ultimately unsuccessful, but if you consider it really a continuation of the politics of the pre-Civil War period, if you consider it a continuation of this slaveholding effort to seize control of the American West, it actually links up quite nicely. Um, and so it shouldn't be any surprise um, to, to those of us who, who are interested in this history, that Jefferson Davis and other Confederate leaders were keenly interested in New Mexico and California because they saw that region as, in some ways, part of the slave South already.
0: Well, and it also uh, brings us to the um, kind of the Confederate imperial ambitions, and you know, you mentioned how it's rewritten after the war, but what were the Confederate imperial ambitions? I mean, it's written into their constitution, correct?
1: Exactly. Um, so so Jefferson Davis goes on record a number of times during and after the war to say, we have, we have no imperial ambitions. All we want is to be left alone. Uh, just let us go in peace. And Robert E. Lee repeats this line after the war too. And so it, they, they repeat it enough that it's sort of entrenched in Confederate lore that, you now this was really a defensive action um, and that the slave states of the South just wanted to go in peace. Well, all you have to do is look at what they were doing in the American West and they'll realize pretty quickly that they didn't have any intention of, uh, of remaining a sort of non-expansionist and, and peaceful polity. Um, it's true that for a lot of the 1850s, slaveholding Southerners had um, had a real interest in carving up pieces of the Caribbean and making places like Cuba into the next slave state. And during the Civil War, Confederate leaders actually sort of abandoned their plans for expansion into the Atlantic basin. And they they abandoned these plans primarily because they're worried about what that will what sort of signal that will send to Europe. I mean, if Confederates launched an invasion of Cuba during the Civil War, that would not have been good for their foreign policy, but they could launch an invasion of New Mexico, and they hoped of California, without incurring the same sort of foreign policy costs. and so, uh, like you say, John, the, the right to expand was written explicitly into the Confederate Constitution. Uh, there's a clause in the Constitution that reads that the Confederacy can incorporate additional territories, and those additional territories must legalize the institution of slavery. Um, so it doesn't get a whole lot clearer than that. The Confederates were out for an empire. They just didn't succeed in building one.
0: Right, and they, yeah. Ultimately, lost the war too. but um, and I think now we can talk a little bit about the monuments that were created in California, especially um, after the war and or, you know post war years. Um, but in, in yeah, let's talk about that because it it seems like the lost cause narrative um, really has dominated our understanding of the post-war and what led up to it. Why do you think that is, and, and why is it successful?
1: Yeah, so the the lost cause makes its way into the American West and really the early 20th century, and that's the that's the really long tail to my book. Um, so the book ends in, in basically modern day California, um, looking at the Confederate statues that were built. Um, you know across the 20th century um and from a certain perspective it's absolutely wild you know why would you build a confederate monument in california in this free state but again with the uh, with the, the power of hindsight and what we know about how slavery and slaveholders operated in california and the far west it actually makes some sense why we why we could find these confederate monuments there so california in the 20th century um contained far more confederate monuments and place names uh and markers than any other free state in the in the country um i've found more than a dozen of them in total um so there were markers to the jefferson davis memorial highway uh, there was the town of confederate corners there was um uh Uh, There were three monuments or memorials, I should say, to Confederate soldiers in Orange County, in San Diego, in Hollywood. Um, There uh, is this really scenic series of foothills um, at the base of the Sierra Nevadas, uh, known as the Alabama Hills, named for the CSS Alabama, the feared Confederate warship. Um, There were trees, redwood trees, named for Robert E. Lee, a mountain named for Jefferson Davis, um, and two schools named for Robert E. Lee. Um, so the lost cause was in California. Confederate heritage was in California. I mean, most people didn't really know much about these monuments. Um, they were they were hiding in plain sight for almost a, a century. Um, and it was really only with uh, first the um, white nationalist, uh, rally in Charlottesville, and then the murder of George George Floyd that brought scrutiny to these monuments. Today, if you go looking for a Confederate monument or memorial or place name in California, you're probably not going to find any. Um, basically, all of them have been re- removed or renamed except for the trees named for Robert E. Lee, um, because those trees must be renamed through a congressional act. Um, they're still technically named for Robert E. Lee, although all the signage is removed. So it... Good luck finding a Confederate monument in California today, but they were there, um, and they were there for the better part of a century.
0: And and they were there because the, the California has a rich and long legacy of, of racism even after the war, because when the war ends, then the anti-Chinese movement comes in and uh, some of that. And you also mentioned this group of Confederates that moved to LA which I think it was just a weird thing that <laughs> happened.
1: Yeah, so um after the war, like I said, there were a number of white Southerners in California prior to the war, and there were a number of Confederate sympathizers in California during the war. I mean, Los Angeles may have been majority Confederate. Um, California as a whole remains loyal to the Union, but in Southern California, it's really touch and go. So, actually, to refer to an earlier question you asked, John, about sort of the division within California, there is a division within California for a lot of the 1850s and through the Civil War. That sort of mirrors the division in the country at large. I mean, the northern part of California is more populous. Um it's more uh, affluent in the 1850s and uh and more uh more anti-slavery. The southern part of California is more rural uh, and more pro-slavery and, and and Los Angeles the frontier town of LA was really the heart and soul of pro-slavery California. Um so after the war, um, uh, a number of Confederate veterans moved to Los Angeles County. Um, they moved there because, uh, well, some of their friends are there already. Um, and they moved there, you know, for the same reason so many people have moved to California over the years. It's it's climate. Um, and they opened the only Confederate veterans retirement home outside of the former slave holding states and territories. Um, uh, it's in uh, San Gabriel. It's in this leafy suburb of Los Angeles. Um, and, uh, and you know dozens of Confederate veterans passed through this, uh, this rest home in the late uh, 1920s and early 1930s. Um, and most of them are buried in Hollywood Cemetery, what's now Hollywood Forever Cemetery, uh, and they're buried in a special Confederate plot in Hollywood Cemetery. uh, And their friends erect a memorial to commemorate their service to the Confederacy, right in the middle of Hollywood, right in the middle of Los Angeles. I came across this memorial over the course of my research and not much had been written on it. It was just this this weird curiosity. But, you know, there are a ton of memorials in in Hollywood Forever Cemetery. So this one didn't get any attention. But then I wrote an op-ed for the Los Angeles Times in, what was that, 2016. And I think about a couple of days after the op-ed appeared, the white supremacist, riot and rally in Charlottesville broke out, uh, that generated real interest in Confederate monuments across the country. And actually, this one in Hollywood was was removed. Um, But it was built in 1925 or erected in 1925, which makes it the earliest, to my knowledge, the earliest Confederate monument anywhere on the Pacific coast.
0: That's amazing. And uh, of course, the plot is still there. Just the memorial was gone.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So it's, yeah, it's crazy to think about the, the, why those memorials went up at the time they did and in the super problematic history that we just ignore or don't know about.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and those memorials in California go up for much the same reason that memorials in the in the South go up. Um, I mean, at least one of the Robert E. Lee schools was named for him right in the wake of Brown v. Board. It was basically a protest against school desegregation. Um, Often these memorials, as I'm sure your your viewers know, um, go up as um, as a way of pushing back against the slow incremental gains that African Americans had been making towards civil rights.
0: That's right, and the uh, daughters of the Confederacy, which
1: mm-hmm.
0: we'll, we'll discuss today. But um, well, um, is there anything if you could have like your elevator pitch about the book? What would your what would we walk away with? having learned from it?
1: That slavery wasn't a regional institution. It wasn't ever something that you could keep in the 15 slave states of the South that leaked out across the continent. And it took lots of different shapes and forms. So I think we need to think of American slavery in a... in a in a more kaleidoscopic way. Um, It wasn't, of course, it was primarily African Americans, four million of them who were forced into slavery uh, on by the eve of the Civil War. But that also includes 10s of 1000s of Native Americans trapped in all sorts of states of bondage. Um, American slavery really was a transcontinental institution, and it was a multi ethnic institution.
0: Thanks for listening to Unpacking 1619. For more information on Heights Library 1619 Project Discussion Group, or to check out more interviews with scholars, please visit heightslibrary.org. See you next episode, wherever you listen to podcasts.